How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Our consumer economy is so wedded to purchasing products and owning them that it's hard to imagine any other way of satisfying our needs and desires. We, when consumers buy less stuff, the economy suffers. Now entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and around the country are creating new technologies and companies enabling people to share or rent, not buy. The sharing economy is hot, and hundreds of startups are sprouting up for items that are expensive to own and used infrequently. Cars, designer gowns, power tools, fancy cooking utensils, you name it. These Internet-enabled services are even aimed at changing the way people invest and how companies pool capital. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the creativity and disruption of the sharing economy with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three people deeply involved in this new form of capitalism. Lisa Gansky is author of The Mesh, Why the Future of Business is Sharing. Andy Rubin is co-founder of Yertle and former VP of Global E-Commerce Strategy at Walmart. And Billy Parrish is founder and president of Solar Mosaic, a crowdfunding company here in the Bay Area. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Lisa Gansky, you recently tweeted that ownership is oh so last century. What does that mean? Well, um, my, my feeling and my and the work that we've been, I guess, all working on is that last century we spent a lot of, uh, especially the second half of last century, um, buying a lot of stuff. And I, I think that the more people that I speak to around the world, really, especially in the developed world, in, in the Occidental world, um, we, we're suffering from some form of a stuff hangover. You know, we have far more things than we actually use as a global community. And so um, the, the tweet was really that um, there's last century we didn't have the technology to, uh, for example, track things that we can right now track so that you would rent a building or you would rent a floor of a building. Things were sort of bigger chunks, uh, bigger chunks of time and, and bigger things themselves. So a floor of a building as opposed to the ability to tap into, I want that conference room for an hour because I'm flying through Madrid. Um, and because of the mobile phones that probably many of you have, I, I have at least one, um, we're, we're, it's kind of our remote control for moving around the world so we can find each other in things much easier. And in many ways, the technology sensors allowing us to find things and these mobile devices allowing us to find each other have really uh, taken the friction out of sharing. So last century, those things weren't in place and it was quite difficult to, to share. I, I have friends of mine that are, for example, from Switzerland, in fact, uh, the people who started Zipcar got inspired by what was happening in Europe, which was basically a big blackboard that had keys and names and you had to go and erase your name. And, you know, <laughs> when you think about that, you say, well, was car sharing going to scale? No. <laughs> but the technology really frees that up, frees us up and frees up the tools and the assets. And so we'll just have you define a little bit the, the sharing economy, and then we'll get Andy and Billy in here. So the sharing economy is is what? How do you define that term and the scope of it right now? Um, you know, my, I'll tell you my the way I think about it. I think about it as um, we're moving from a world in which ownership was the real one option to a world in which access to goods, services, and talent will triumph over ownership. Um, that's the fundamental, so that we're able to, at least it doesn't mean that really ownership, no, we won't own things. I, I certainly still own things and expect I, I always will. Um, but it's it's more that um, we have the option of also accessing experiences or services or talent or assets, um, tools, buildings, vacation homes, 
um, when we want it, and we just pay for what we use. And so the business models, because of the technology, the business models are plentiful, um, much more interesting, and we have much more granularity so that we can really choose exactly what we want when we want it and pay for what the value, the true value. Andy Rubin, uh, you worked for Walmart, one of the top largest companies in the world. I believe their their uh, logo is something like uh, "Buy More, Live Better." Uh, uh, so uh, they're in the business of making lots of stuff. So how did you come to sharing from working at such a large retailer? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of one of the genesis or the the start for Yertle was the obviousness of what Lisa just mentioned. We have. You know, we're living in a world, one of the stats that amazes me is there are 62 Lego bricks for every man, woman, and child on the planet. We're living in a world of such abundance of things that we own. And the technology we were just talking about that says, you know, when my daughter goes to play soccer in the fall, my, my first thought right now is I would buy shin guards from a retailer. When there are dozens of girls who are one year older who are done with the shin guards, and they're not 500 miles away in a distribution center. The distribution centers are, of the future are our closets and garages. And so our ability through the service that we launched, Yertle, allows you to you know, join Yertle, be connected with your friends, and have access to that wealth, the things that we've been amassing for years, can be put to better use. And the beauty we've seen of that in, in the 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 fact that most people talk about my own experience is there's such an amazing, beautiful connection of being able to pass on shin guards to someone. It's, it's a gift. You're passing something on for someone who's looking for that. And that's a, that's a special opportunity. I mean, that already exists. It's called the goodwill or it's called, uh, you know, other things people do through school. But what, I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that this new technology platform is making that easier and more convenient. Yeah. One of... One of the things that we love about the space is it's this is not a newfangled technology that no one has ever thought of passing something on to a friend. It's the ability to put something that you've cared about in the hands of someone who's looking for it then. And while we know a lot about the people that we hang out with and the people that we work with and go to school with, we don't always know who is in need of a keyboard for their son to take you know, piano lessons. And so the ability of technology to help know, you know, the use of something that you have that you're done with, or in the converse, that my daughter's going to play soccer, who's got shin guards? And, and that's where technology, as Lisa was saying, changes the dynamic of how sharing can be, you know, it's an existing behavior, but the ability to do that at scale and with the efficiency allows sharing to become part of the retail model. And there's also the investing model, uh, Billy Parrish. Your part here is that it, this it, similar technologies are changing the way people can pool capital that can make investments. So we're talking about consumers and investors. So tell us how you came to Mosaic and, and how that is part of the sharing economy broadly defined. Yeah. So, you know, Mosaic allows people to directly invest in clean energy projects. And energy is the largest market in the world. And to get to 100% clean energy, we need $100 trillion of investment to get there. And over the last couple of years, we've only channeled $250 billion into clean energy. And that's almost entirely been banks. They kind of own that asset class. And so what we're unlocking is the ability for individuals to participate in that asset class, to be energy owners, energy producers, not just energy consumers. So it's, you know, it's answering this access question. And at the current rate, it's going to take us 400 years to build out the clean energy capacity we need. So we actually need more people to get in on the game, to to participate in this economy. And uh, they've been locked out of it until now. So the old models are broken, hearing it across all of this. Let's talk a little bit about motivation. Uh, do people do this because uh, they want to save money? I mean, a lot of these companies, I first started hearing about them during the recession and with certain demographics with people who maybe can't afford a car. So, hey, we'll share one. Airbnb came out of couch surfing because it's cheaper than a hotel. So was this a child of the recession and hard economic times? Is that really the driver beneath Lisa? Um, I think it's one of the one of the factors for sure. Um, I think that there were several things that came together: population 
density in cities. Um, in 2010, it was the first time in the history of our planet uh, that people have been keeping records that we've moved into uh, being more than 50% of the people living in urban environments than in rural ones. So population density, more people in the same physical space invites less stuff. Um, and we don't want to have a less exciting life, so we're then trading things for experiences. Um, the recession, in my view, was certainly a, a, prov a provoker of a lot of this. In mm -hmm. fact, um, much of the research that's been done, and whether you look at car sharing or Airbnb-type uh, type, uh, platforms, um, what you see, what you get told is that the first time that people do it, you know, yeah, I car shared because I put my car up because it's expensive. I'm not using it that much. And I made $700 a month. It was really worth it. Or, you know, the average in San Francisco is $9,300 that uh, hosts make for towards their home um, in San Francisco excuse me, San Francisco with Airbnb. So, you know, the study that, in fact, Airbnb did a study last year that said uh, that there was a significant number of the hosts who actually used the Airbnb money to support their regular life, nothing really fancy but just pay the mortgage, pay the energy bill, those sorts of things. The general report is that people try it first because it makes financial sense. And then there's this, like the jack-in-the-box, there's the surprise inside. The sharing economy surprise inside is that you feel you feel good. You know, you're connected. To, not always. I'm, I imagine it, it's not an always true thing. But the general feedback has been that they continue to do it often because they met cool people or they had a really nice experience or it felt much nicer to borrow a car or stay in somebody's home uh, than stay in a hotel because they they went native when they visited, you know, San, uh, San Francisco or New York or whatever the city was. Mm -hmm. So, but to your point, absolutely, the, the, the savings is a pretty compelling um, initial spark that gets people going. So economics and then social. Uh, Bill McKibben was here recently. He said one of the great achievements of the last 20 years, we've, we've built bigger houses further apart from each other. So we're more isolated from each other. So we want a little connection. Andy Rubin, is that social connection part of it? Absolutely. And one of, one of the things that excites me right now about the space is that with the advent of technology, they're just better models. So when they're a better model, they're better because they make economic sense, they make social sense, they make emotional sense, they provide community. And at that point, as these better models, simply better models of commerce, better models of transportation, um, less hassle with parking, you know, whatever they are, they, you don't have to, just like any other transition, you don't have to convince people to move to them. People experience the better model and they don't go back. So how, how big is the sharing economy now as a percentage of the U.S. global U.S. total economy? I mean, is this a, a Berkeley and Boulder and Boston thing? Is it really just niche? You know, how big is the sharing economy? Do we know? Uh, my answer is no. I don't, we don't know. I think we're at the very beginning of something that's very that's going to be really fundamental to reshape how we think about living, working, spending, and. Um, and I think that, and community, I would say there's a huge piece of it that's really about people being more connected. But, um, you know, there's there are stats, so $3 billion worth of crowdfunding expected by the end of this year. Um, it's growing very rapidly. You know, it's, it's something like 600,000-plus new members at Etsy on a monthly basis. What's uh, Etsy? Uh, Etsy, sorry, is a, is a marketplace um, similar to, let's say, eBay, where people who are crafters or, you know, make things, put what they make up for sale and people buy what, they're, what they've made. And they're making, you know, a living or supplementing their living, but they're getting to express themselves through, uh, you know, a service like Etsy. Uh, so these are growing, but I think we're, we're really in the very early stages. And there's one other piece which um, I hope, you know, we'll, we will see be evolving over the next, hopefully, year or two, is policy and regulation. That, um, you know, a lot of what we have certainly um, with the SEC and with the PUC and various other, uh, you know, organizations ending in C um, – uh, who are regulating, especially in the United States, are very organized around, again, last century's models. And things are changing very rapidly. And I think the regulators are, you know, having a real challenge keeping up with uh, what is really 
a significant challenge to old old thinking. So policy often lags innovation, and in a couple of cases specifically where that's been a problem is the hotel tax. People stay in Airbnb in San Francisco. Uh, they don't pay the hotel tax. That's a big problem for the city of San Francisco that relies on services. So what's the solution there for, uh, you know, an economy is dependent. The hotels don't like it. The city doesn't like it. That's, there's disruption where policy doesn't sort of, hasn't caught up to the innovation. What, I mean, uh, if you're asking me, if you, sure, Lisa. If you, I would say that um, we're lucky in San Francisco because Mayor Lee has put sharing economy front and center in his platform. And he's formed working committees and there's groups of people really dedicated to figuring out innovative policies that, um, for example, with Airbnb, keep companies that are at the forefront of the, this new industry in San Francisco. And at the same time, um, you know, are balance out the benefits across to the city itself. So the hotel tax, which, which is 14% in the city, um, would would sort of really put uh, a real kind of, uh, would quell a lot of, I think, the activity around Airbnb. And so, they, and, and using them as an example, there are many other uh, services and platforms. But the city is really looking at a balance point and trying to figure out um, how to do that, and there are, you know, London and New York and other cities are working on similar things. So, um, you know, I'm quite encouraged. I would say also the cities are learning to share between themselves because as one tries some new model or some new policy, um, there's increasing interaction between the various chief innovation officers or CTOs of the cities to see how, um, and one of the big things that cities are sharing uh, with all of us and also between th- themselves is data. Um, and I think that data in many ways is kind of the gateway drug for the sharing economy. It allows us to see, oh, my God, we have so many strollers and so many shin guards and so many things here. You know, it also allows you to see how many cars, how many parking spaces are not used, and all sorts of assets can be managed in different ways that are high value to the city. But using last century's business model, they leave a lot of money on the table. Billy Parrish, you had some battles with regulators talking about innovation, kind of pace, uh, outpacing policy just to get regulatory approval to sell the kind of investments to allow people to invest directly in a solar project, which before they couldn't do. You could invest in a pipeline directly, but you couldn't invest in a solar project. So tell us a little bit about the regulatory hurdles you had to go through and how the policy has been lagging there. Yeah, you know, the, the regulations in energy were designed for fossil fuel energy sources. So there are all sorts of tax incentives and benefits for people to invest in pipelines or uh, oil rigs and things like that. And the, the, the regulation around our financial industry was designed for banks. So, uh, you know, it, it's been challenging to uh, publicly offer investments. So you're taking on two huge industries, not just one. <laughs> yeah, so we're at okay. the intersection of these two industries uh, that um, – you know, we're really designed for a different time, as, as Lisa said, and, uh, you know, our challenge was to, uh, you know, show the regulators that these investments that we're putting together are, you know, the same types of investments that banks have been investing in for decades, and we just want to allow people to participate in investing in them as well. And, you know, it took uh, over a year to get approval uh, of our model, and, and we were really the first in that space to do that, so we, you know, had to break a lot of new ground to enable that. With a lot of fancy lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the sharing economy was on the, for, the cover of Forbes magazine, I believe, in, in January. Is Wall Street taking notice? I mean, is this going to, is this till, I mean, obviously, the financial media has taken notice. Uh, has Wall Street taken notice? Is like, oh, there's something happened out there in California. We ought to keep an eye on it. I don't think the banks are scared yet. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, in the in the financial industry, uh, you know, the two folk, the two companies that have really begun to scale to a level that I think the banks are beginning to pay attention are Lending Club and Prosper, which facilitate peer-to-peer consumer loans. So they allow, you know, me to make a loan to someone to help them refinance their credit card and. That allows the borrower to get a lower rate than they can get from the bank, and that allows me to have access to an asset class that I didn't have access to, to before and to make good returns on my investment. So in the consumer lending space, it's begun to 
I think, you know, they've done $1.8 billion in peer-to-peer loans, and it's just beginning in other sectors. And that raises a key point to all this, which is trust. So there needs to be some arbiter of trust in all these things, and whether it's Facebook, Andy Rubin, where you, you share your tools with people you know, or there, there is something that says someone validates that who I'm going to lend $50 to, they're going to pay me back, that they're a good credit risk. So let's talk about the importance of trust here and enabling this kind of sharing, this sharing economy. Andy Rubin, you know, I mean, do people, you're, 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 uh, platform is premised on people sharing with, with someone they know so, or, or uh, someone who, who, you know, one degree of, sep- or of separation. Correct. And, you know, at this point, when you log on to Yertle, you, you do it with Facebook because of the ease in logging on with Facebook. It provides you a, you know, right away on average, you know, several hundred users. So the average person who joins Yertle joins with between 300 and 320 items that are available to them for free based on the connections through Facebook. So it's a very compelling starting place. Does it stay there forever? No, it, it has alternatives that go way beyond there. It's part of, you know, it's part of the first move to get these things moving with trust though is that anyone that you've made a connection with, right, or a friend of that person as we've experimented, you have enough trust either with a friend or through a friend that, you know, we, we minimize kind of the exploding toaster risk. And we provide the upside and the excitement of handing a special book to somebody who you've got a connection with, somebody you want to get to know better, somebody that you haven't seen in a while. And so it provides a good starting point, and its trust is absolutely an, assel- it's an essential model of this currency. I have a lot of friends I wouldn't let borrow my car, though. Um, you know, I mean, the, there's, there's parameters of trust, right? So... So Lisa Gansky, you know, there's there's different dimensions of of trust. There's people that you'll trust in some areas, but but not in other areas, right? So totally, yeah. So I mean, how does that so, play out in this economy in terms of these different? So I'm not going to borrow your car, is that what Sorry, you're I, yeah, <laughs> I saw the, yeah. You're breaking gonna. the news in front of everyone. Yeah. Um, let's see. I would say, yeah, you know, that, that basically the, the, uh, we all have people. So I don't know about you guys. Um, how many people have more than 500 friends on Facebook? Uh, about a third of the audience. How many people, people actually know those people? Right. So it can be Facebook friends you don't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, my point is just that I think, you know, the whole meaning of friend, it, it's sort of more moved into kind of a, what I call a tofu word, that it starts to be like everything else. It's, you know, you can use it for everything. And now, but but if somebody said to me, like, would you um, be willing to share this photo you took of tonight with your, all your Facebook friends? I'd say sure. Mm-hmm. But would I be willing to let them watch my kid or use my car? The answer is no. I don't actually know probably more than 50% of them. So um, yep. so I think a lot of what we're doing in, in this process is kind of creating a level of transparency and building systems for knowing how to vouch for each other. You know, who would you trust for which sorts of things? And like you said, there's a, there's different people who you would trust to do different sorts of things, um, have access to your personal files versus, you know, borrow your car, your car or, you know, somebody that you would be willing to go in with to purchase, to make a purchase. And what about the demographics of this sharing economy? Is this really a, an under 40 kind of thing where people are pretty web savvy hip? I mean, are there, are there grandmothers who are like sharing canes? I don't know. What are they, you know? <laughs> I can't answer that, but okay. I, um, but there are the demographics aren't as you would think. I mean, the the um, it's there's certainly it, it's kind of um, bookends. So you have twenty somethings and, and twenty thirty somethings, and you have kind of the the, the forty five and up, and um, the services are diverse enough that people use different sorts of services. So, for example. Um, you know, Billy gave gave the comment before about peer-to-peer lending, lending club. There's another one, Zopa and um, Prosper. Those three, they actually offer as as a person who has money and wants to put it someplace, they offer good returns. And so it's up to you. So you you see people, for example, grandparents. I don't know about trading canes, but they're but they're looking for a place to park money that they think is a reasonable risk. Um, and a lot of these places have a really high, um, a, v- a very high percentage of return, or said another way, the def- default rate of the, these lending clubs are far less by uh, probably an order of magnitude than commercial banks. 
And, um, Billy Parrish? And for us, the range is from 18 to 95. We have a 95-year-old investor on the platform, uh, and the average is about 40. But increasingly, we're finding that people are investing because they don't trust the financial, the broader financial system that, you know, the only 21% of investors in America trust Wall Street and trust the banks. So, uh, and you know where your money goes. That's a big part of it too. It's like when you invest mm-hmm. in solar mosaic or something, you know that your money's staying locally. It's not going into a black hole somewhere doing who knows what. Yeah. And there's a, this connection of trust and transparency that, you know, our goal is to, to allow people to actually see everything about the investment and people can download the pr- prospectus. They can see where their investment is. They can go visit it. You know, the idea that you could, uh, you know, put your IRA in something that you can actually see, touch, and feel, and feel good about, I think is increasingly something that people are wanting because they don't know where their money is going now. And, you know, after the recession uh, and, and the financial crisis, I think that shook a lot of people's confidence in that the system is really set up for them because it's not. Hey, what's that TV show that the, the system is rigged by the people at the tippy tippy top? Um, we're, if you're just joining <laughs> us, uh, Billy Parrish is founder and president of Solar Mosaic. Other guests today at Climate One are Andy Rubin, co-founder of Yertle, and Lisa Gansky, author of The Mesh, Why the Future of Business is Sharing. I'm Greg Dalton. Andy Rubin, you want to get in here? Yeah, you know, we've brought up, we've just talked about, uh, you know, two two points that in the past might seem like there's tension between them. On one hand, you want kind of the trust and security of knowing where something's going to go. And it's, you know, given the choice, you'd rather pass on um, a stroller you're done with to somebody that you work with compared to, a, I mean, most people would, compared to a complete stranger. And on the other hand, you know, you want the, um, you want the size of a market that provides the wealth of options when you're looking for things, right, and, and that demand. And one of the, one of the changes that we're definitely seeing at Yertle as we progress is that technology is eliminating some of that historical trade-off where you had to make the choice between, am I only going to share with the tight people I trust with, you know, have this immediate trust, or am I going to have access to everything and lack trust? And what we're seeing based on online with mobile, the technology, is that by connecting groups of people, for most people on Yertle, you have fairly high levels of trust with people you work with, people you went to school with, people that your kids might go to school with, and that it is actually a fairly robust market within a much more transparent and evidence system of trust. And so it's a historical trade-off that I believe is changing as we move through this with the advent of exposure and and technology. And is this going to result in people buying less crap, less stuff, I mean, ultimately, is this going to change capitalism in, in a profound way? Does this mean we're going to buy more and share it, share it more? On, on an absolute sense, absolutely. And the reason that will happen is because there is, you know, the need, what retailers do anywhere is they serve a need for an experience. Right back to my daughter playing soccer. I, I have no need to buy shin guards. I have a need for my daughter to be well-equipped to play soccer. And so the experience is where it's at. And we've been in a model for years right now where the only way to solve that need is to go and order something online that gets delivered to the door. And the experience isn't changing. I don't expect that people will play less soccer. There are just better ways of getting the things that you need so that your kids can go play soccer. And so there are absolutely, it will not be one for one and it will not be easy to track. But I think without a doubt, as we have more access to the things we already own, there will be less need to produce that same number of items. And at least again, see, because of our economic model, that means GDP is going to go down because GDP is a measure of output of stuff that is produced and consumed. And so what Andy's just talking about is recession is probably too strong, but, but a different way of slower economic growth. Or redefining economic growth. I mean, the other piece is GDP is really, uh, in my view, it's, measuring uh, what was very relevant last century. The game was set, which was we've, we were in the Industrial Revolution. We figured out to make a, a, how to make a lot of stuff really fast, really cheap, and send it everywhere. Yay. Okay, let's now track that. And so what we did was basically make lots of stuff and um, count, you know, making stuff 
selling stuff, buying stuff, throwing stuff away and buying new stuff. And that's the model that we have been trained on. Um, what this is saying is essentially there's a re-commerce, there's a remanufacturing, there's a repurposing, there's a reverse value chain, however you want to call it. But the business of taking things after we're finished using them, after we bought them, and, you know, waste costs money, but in our current model, waste has been subsidized. Now what's going to happen... And not in, measured, right? And not measured. And mm-hmm. now what's going to happen in the future is the cost of waste, water... And energy is what's really going super high. And so you're going to start to see the, the true cost of waste coming through. And that's one of the big reasons that all of us are going to go like, holy crap, all this stuff I have in my garage or, you know, that's sitting around the two kayaks that were in my garage, I figured out something else to do with them, but I still get access. I really want to buy a kayak, but then when I talked to you on the phone, I thought, oh, no, I can't buy a kayak. You can just come <laughs> over, but you won't um, let me use your car. So. Uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, okay, we might renegotiate that one. But the, the um, if companies looking at this are thinking, okay, if this is going to happen, and there's, there seems to be a sense of, if not inevitability, that there's some very powerful forces moving in this direction, what are companies going to do? Are they... Their profits are going to be threatened. How are they going to adapt to this share, the pressure from this sharing economy that's small right now, but it's going to grow? Billy Parrish, any thoughts? Well, um, you know, it, I had lunch a couple months ago with uh, the chairman of Shell, and he said they are talking in their management meetings about a future of distributed clean energy, and. You know, right now they have been doing very well, record profits on this centralized fossil fuel model, but they're talking on a regular basis about how they get to this other world. They don't know how to do it. You know, they, they said, we'll buy it when we see it. It's sort of what he, what he said was their approach. And, uh, I think a lot of the big incumbents in these industries are, uh, beginning to look and see what, what is this going to look like? And, you know, it's, I think, uh, going to be more about service and less mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. new creation. Um, and I think there are opportunities across the value chain that uh, they can step in and, and create value in different ways other than extracting uh, from the earth. Is that going to happen at Walmart, become a service company? I mean, their their whole business model is pushing as much stuff out the door as possible and those shopping carts stuffed to the gills. Were they going to be some kind of service-oriented more than, than uh, consumption-oriented? I guess I guess we'll see about Walmart. I mean, I think in general the, you know, in general I, I really I don't I don't feel badly for companies that don't continue to innovate with a changing marketplace. The opportunity I mean the opportunity is there. It's it's the job of the people who lead these companies to understand where the market moves and to understand the risks and the opportunities that are implicit in that. And with any new model, just like this one, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing that's exciting because there's there's definitely a lot of conversation of what happens when, you know, I give my old blender to Lisa and Lisa doesn't buy a blender. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now that's in, and many more will happen is because we're friends, you know, I, I'm going to let Lisa know that the cord's a little bit frayed. And this is uh, not with Lisa, but, you know, an example that we saw. And immediately, because it's very transparent in the community, you know, someone says, oh, I can fix the cord for you. And so, you know, new models will be born out of the forward progress of better ways of doing things. And I would have never three months ago said, my gosh, there'll be a day when, you know, items that people post to give away will be, you know, somehow denoted that it needs a little bit of love, a little bit of attention. And there'll be whole groups or whole industries born out of fix-it cafes and ability to service, like Billy just mentioned, you know, service things and make them differently that we can get more productivity out of them or just the the recovery of waste you know like a i read a couple years ago that that a ton of mobile phones actually has more usable gold than a ton of of raw gold ore you know so the what we're calling waste actually has in many ways has Mm -hmm. a ton of value and i don't just mean what we're throwing away but also you know what's sitting around is costing us so There are big companies, by the way, as well as cities who have been pretty, I would say, um, happily forward-thinking and aggressive in testing different things. GE um, has launched GE Garages last year, which is beginning to experiment with um, opening up their community, their community of workers and materials as well as factories to local communities. 
they also did GE Eco Imagination Challenge, which was crowdsourcing, uh, you know, uh, actually renewable energy for appliances, solutions, and products, because they realized that the real innovation is not coming from the inside the company, but all the innovators that are outside the company who would never come to work for GE, you know, how are they going to capture that value and invite it? And what they did was create an interesting, you know, crowdsource platform. Um, Nike's doing really interesting things. Unilever, you know, big companies all over the world are, uh, many of them are in the corner shaking and, and pretending that it's going to go away. Um, but having lived through the very early stages of the Internet, it, it's, it's not that different. Um, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the sharing economy. Lisa Gansky is author of The Mesh, Why the Future of Business is Sharing. Andy Rumit is co-founder of Yurtle and a former VP at Walmart. And Billy Parrish is founder and president of Solar Mosaic. I'm Greg Dalton. Is this going to help with the carbon equation? Is this going to, we touched earlier a little bit about uh, less stuff, less extraction. Is this going to help us reduce, you've been talking about waste, but particularly carbon pollution that's disrupting the global climate, that's disrupting, you know, a lot of models are broken here. Our energy model is broken. Our economic model is having some strains. Who'd like to, Andy Rubin? Yeah, products, when, when we think of uh, toxins and waste and energy, you know, it's like products are the, it's the elephant sitting all around us that we don't talk a lot about, but there's a tremendous amount of embedded energy in, you know, any household product. On average, for every one pound of product, there's 71 pounds of waste that went into making that item somewhere in the supply chain. And it's not that, you know, I mean, there are great options for recycling products, but before you recycle a product, the better option is to get more use out of it. And so it reduce, has, reuse, recycles at the end. Yeah. The order actually matters, right? In that, it's, right. Right. So it's um, but I mean that's a phenomenal opportunity of, you know, not only do we have and should people continue to work on making a shoe, right, a little bit less energy intensive, but then also raising the question of as I produce a shoe, can it be worn twice as much? And you know when you think about that side of the equation, it's. The first time that I'm aware of that we actually have the ability for these companies to move beyond simply looking at the supply chain and then stopping the relationship at the point of purchase, and as Lisa mentioned, with great upside of companies that innovate to carry that relationship beyond and actually move into the use cycle of a product. We had the CEO of Levi's and the VP of Patagonia here recently talking about sort of uh, what happens at the end of the useful life cycle, but also eBay, where some, you, if you, you know, you're done with that Patagonia jacket, then it goes on eBay, and, and that's their, those companies are okay with that. It doesn't dilute their brand. Um, Billy Parrish, did you want to get on that? Yeah, you know, Americans think about energy for six minutes a year. Uh, and, you know, I think partly that's because we're uh, just passive energy consumers. Uh, and so for us, you know, we're, we're trying to channel a lot more money into the clean energy economy, financing more solar energy systems, which will help drive down carbon pollution. But it's also about getting people involved. And that's one of the things that the internet enables. It, it's a platform to, for engagement, for getting people to be not just passive consumers, but producers, um, owners in, in this new economy. And you know, we think that will translate into political power, that, that will translate into helping to pass more policies to accelerate this transition. If, you know, we have a million investors, clean energy investors on our platform, we can show up in Sacramento or Washington, D.C. in a very different way than an organization that has a bunch of emails. These are actually investors, and and that, I think, is an exciting sort of additional part of the solution. And a cool thing about this is thinking about the sun as a revenue stream. Sunlight is coming down, and it's like literally dollars, right, that that's going into your 401K. And I believe that the the, the return <laughs> – uh, you like that? Uh, the as, as the stock market hit an all-time high today. Uh, but um, as – the return you offer, how does it compare to traditional banks and CDs? Is, is there typically there's more return, there's some more risk there? Yeah, so the, the range of, of returns, the expected annual rates of return has been between 45 and 6.38%, which... Beats a CD left on my check, yeah. Yeah, uh, and most other available, invest, you know, publicly available investment products on the market. Uh, That's got to be it's more risky. So... Initially, when we started the company, we were thinking, you know, people will want to put solar on their roof or on their community center, and we'll just 
create a platform for them to get together and fund that. And I think we may be able to do that down the road, but we've realized that we're really creating a new kind of investment product and experience and are taking a high road approach to that. So really curating the best credits on our platform, the lowest risk investments that we can, because, you know, and this gets back to that trust question, one of the challenges of, of this new economy is people really need to be able to trust that the platform itself is helping to take care of people. Mm-hmm. So we're, that's a, become a major focus at Mosaic. And, you know, you saw what happened with Airbnb. They had, you know, somebody had a bad experience. Their house got wrecked that they lent it out to. And they've, you know, doubled down on trust and insurance and, for their renters and, you know, that I think is incumbent on these new platforms is going the extra mile and setting a new standard for customer service and protection. So I'm sure, you know, all of us are thinking about how to even do it better than, you know, the existing products out there in the market. And your first round of investments sold out in what, 24 hours? Yeah. Faster than, than you than you anticipated. We're going to uh, go to audience questions in a minute. I want to ask each of you, uh, there's hundreds of companies out there in the sharing economy. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, uh, where you can uh, share an elegant gown. I'd like to ask Lisa, what are some of the one, ones out there that are your favorites that are so if occupying interesting niches for sharing products or services that you wouldn't, that might be interesting? Um, well, Solar Mosaic and Yertle. <laughs> no. Otherwise, um, no. I, I mean, in, in all honesty, they are both of them represent interesting um, classes of of business. Uh, I think that um, there are a number of. Um, so, if you look from a like everyday, I live my life kind of thing, um, a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the services that are kind of Airbnb like, you know, um, one fine stay, Airbnb. Love home swap. They're all slightly different. They're, they're, but it really does give you a chance to e- even have a different perspective in your own city. Um, mm-hmm. So I've used, used some of those services not only when I travel but also around here. And it's interesting. You get a mm-hmm. really interesting sense of the neighborhood. Um, recent new entries, I mean – Honestly, these two guys are doing really cool stuff. But um, Andy or Billy, any any ones out there that are kind of niche that are interesting? That to, nothing pops to mind. Okay. You probably know. You know, one, two that we used uh, recently. We we were going through a kind of uh, designing a new logo, and we we went to two platforms, CrowdSpring and 99designs, and said, you know, this is sort of what we want in a logo, and and we got hundreds of designs from designers all around the world, and. Uh, it was uh, a 16-year-old girl in Indonesia that designed the sort of Mosaic's new logo. So, you know, that's an example of... Uh, that's a flat world where, yeah. yeah, she can beat out the aces in New York or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Let's go to uh, audience questions. Um, we are going to invite your participation uh, here with one one-part question or comment. I'm here to help you keep it brief. And uh, if you're on this side, we invite you to please go through those doors rather than crossing the cameras. And uh, the line starts with our uh, producer, Jane Ann, there in the back. So uh, this is often the most lively part of the program. So uh, kind of come on up and we will invite your uh, participation. We're talking about the sharing economy at Climate One. Welcome. Yes. Hi. Yes. So um, Walmart, I used to work with Macy's, I, so I share some of your pain around that <laughs> thought where we used to say, well, don't stress about it too much each day because we're just selling people stuff they don't need. Um, and I really take that to heart. And as I hear you guys talk today and I think about how we measure economic activity and we think, what are the new KPIs that, that we're going to measure then? How do we measure that? Because KPI being? The, the key performance indicators um, that, that we use. So if we talk about things like GDP as one type of K- KPI that we use to measure economic output and growth, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts around, you know, what, what do you see and how can we potentially measure some of these outputs the, the thought that came to my mind when you were talking about, for example, the blunder. Well, if I don't have to go buy a, a blunder, mm-hmm. well, yeah, people might say you just impacted the economy in a negative way. But now, since I don't have to go buy that blunder, now I can use that money towards other things. But besides money, how are we measuring the non-monetary inputs and outputs of the economy? So, so what are the, some of the yardsticks for the sharing economy, Lisa Gansky? Well, um, first of all, I think the, tr- the notion of transactions versus products. So people are looking at... You know, you as an entrepreneur, 
you, you spend money on three things. You, you build a team, you build a product or infrastructure, and you acquire customers. Um, if you look at what's happening with music and publishing right now, the, those industries um, relative, the old guys, old models relative to, say, Amazon, Amazon has really learned that you love Amy Tan and you love Stephen King and they market specifically to you as opposed to pay for marketing to everyone. So their cost of acquisition of a customer once they have you, especially as a prime customer, is really zero for every subsequent transaction. Um, that's a really compelling model in this new world. And I think that increasingly we're going to see all sorts of companies going after that. Um, you see that every major auto manufacturer in the last three years has actually redefined themselves declaratively by saying we're not in the auto business, we're in the mobility business, um, which lends, you know, it's poetic, but also it opens up uh, for all sorts of things. So metrics include transactions. I think waste is going to be um, value because uh, if we're remanufacturing and recovering what we used to call waste as real value into the supply chain, that's going to have real value coming back. Um, and so there's a, a lot of things that were sort of out of the peripheral vision of the old industrial economy that becomes very mm-hmm. intric- intricate and possible to measure because of sensors and people being connected to these networks. Um, transactions, waste are two that I think are, you know, up right now for grabs. And, Andy and, Rubin? Yeah, one, one thing I'll add is in the way the world changes with mobile and information, you know, in the old world for retail, the average person at a, at a store parks 23 spots away from the front door. So once you've parked your car, you've essentially paid a cover charge, and then you are just going to pick up additional items, where loyalty was all about the banner to get you to park your car at their store as opposed to the one, you know, next to them. Today, in a world where, with a mobile phone, you can be in a store and buy a product from a competitor store, and basically the endless options of number of products and offerings and price and delivery options, loyalty has always been around in retail but takes on a very different meaning. And so while the metric isn't new, you know, it's not like loyalty is a new metric, the role that loyalty plays and the cost that lack of loyalty can have to a business is why we're seeing models like Amazon Prime and the Target Red Card that are as much about maintaining the customer as they are about selling items. And so I would say to continue to watch for existing metrics to take on new meaning with, you know, as technology becomes more prevalent in our lives. There's one more that, I, that you actually reminded me of, which I would say the value of data. Um, and increasingly that there's a, there's a real value not only for, uh, you know, instances of data, but shared data has more value. And so we're going to see a real shift. I, I actually think that we're going to see a shift towards shared things, things designed for sharing, services designed for sharing, and data that's been shared will have more value than than those that are sort of inside of a wall. And you talk about, uh, say, a uh, high-end vacuum cleaner where that will then be designed as kind of like cell phones now where it's something that you you kind of buy a subscription, you, you buy an upgrade path, you buy a lifelong of happy cleaning. I don't know, you know. Yeah, uh, so, I don't know about those two words going yep, together. But right, yeah. okay. But, but the idea that it's something that the, <laughs> the company that makes it agrees to take it back from you at some point and give you something that's newer, better, and you're willing to share some data in that exchange. So it's very much, you know, what we've kind of all been talking about, which is I think that's right, that, that um, these companies are going to be incented whether, and we've seen it slightly happening in addition with cell phones, certainly. To, with cars where, you know, uh, a, your car company gives you 100,000 miles or six-year warranty, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. Um, I think that products are, are going to have um, be the responsibility of the manufacturer, that they're going to think more wisely about um, maintenance and building things as platforms so that they're upgradable and the cost of waste and how, how you know, how they're going to set up communities to service things. Um, uh, similar to sort of dealerships, if you and want to use that not metaphor. make them so they break down in a year, so you have to buy a new one. Precisely, and and so for that reason, they're really looking at you know if they have the responsibility of because if the onus is on, if the most expensive thing they do is to acquire us as a customer, 
then they don't want to do that every year or every time there's an interaction. Instead, if we are, are their customer and there's this relationship and they continue to perform, I mean, we, they still have to delight us, um, but because no one wants to really be held hostage in, a, in the equivalent of a crappy cell phone contract, uh, contract yeah, right? right. So, um, so anyway, sorry, you had a question. What's our next question? Hi. I have a personal question. Um, I see this against another trend that in, um, technology is enabling, the personalization of products, how you can get your own stuff made cheaper for just you. You can get your jeans made for you. The 3D printer is on that cusp of being able to have people make things at home on a personal basis. Is this going to break down in such a way as some things will be shared, some things will be personalized, or will it be some people do the sharing and some people do the personalization? Thank you. Personalization and sharing. Yeah. We'd like to tackle that. I, I would just give you one Lisa comment, Gansky. which is I definitely think that the the um, the sort of tension that uh, – I, I, I lost your name, but the, this, the woman just uh, represented is that the maker economy, people being able to make things, and 3D printers, I don't know if, if everyone's familiar with those, but it's basically a printer that – um, drives uh, a design off of the, a computer design and it basically prints a 3D item. So, for example, a friend of mine had an irrigation system that was really expensive to fix. They, they scanned a, three, a three-dimensional scan of a part and after a few hours and a few glasses of wine, they, ha- they had actually made the part that they could then snap in. Um, so those out sorts of wine. Of, out of wine, which is really amazing. It didn't last long. But. So, so, um, so that notion that you can print something, I think, is um, at least for the moment, sort of quite a geeky thing. And having been in the photo business, you know, we were there was a lot of many companies thought that everyone would have photo printers in their house and be printing photos. I'm guessing that not many of us do that. So. So there are people like 99designs, which Billy referred to earlier as a platform of lots of artists all over the world. I think that what we will see is this disaggregation of makers, artists, architects, designers who can come up with really cool things and then access to platforms, whether it's 3D printers housed at Kinko's or your house or a, a hacker co-working space or GE's factory that's been opened up as a platform, um, I think we're going to see all sorts of ways where there's a decoupling of people who are capable of designing things and people who actually have uh, infrastructure to allow those things to be made. That sounds very creative and innovative and also very disruptive. So who's really threatened by this? Not the three of us. Not the three of you, no. <laughs> no one in this room. Can I build on, uh, on, on one of the comments Lisa just made, which I think is the question of personalization, and it's, you know, these are, these are options that can be brought together in terms of what you're looking for. And I think the comment Lisa made is exactly right, where, you know, makers, when we talked about Etsy earlier, have a platform that hadn't existed before. And the ability that when you are looking for an experience, you can put together, and a retailer is kind of, or someone like that, can help you put together where some things are borrowed, some things are made from a, cra- you know, a craftsman who might be down the road. Some things are from a warehouse 500 miles away. But the ability to still have, to build these as options, the way we're building sharing is not that nobody ever buys anything new. It's that sharing will increasingly become a go-to option for a suite of things. And it's, for many things and in many occasions, it will be a smarter option. It will save money. It will save resources. It will create more human connection. But it doesn't mean that no one's ever going to make anything. It's, it's the question of the access to sharing and the access to makers and the access to new items put together in a way that provides, um, what allows a retailer to better serve needs. It sounds more like a, what, another term, the gig economy, where people are working independently as freelancers. Is this also, like Billy was describing, a less large, centralized kind of economy where there, things are more decentralized, that manufacturing is decentralized, kind of like he's talking about energy? I would say more so than today. Yes, I think it's very much moving to distributed. I mean, if you look at also, um, you you may have seen recently a number of articles about co-working spaces that are being used by big corporations um, all over the world because they realize that 
um, it's an it's an interesting way not to create their own co-working space, but to submerse their teams into public co-working spaces because it creates more interaction, more surface area, more awareness. The, the sharing the, the sharing has an opportunity for serendipity that highly programmed things lack. So it's not just because it's uh, cheaper; it's that actually people come up with ideas and like, oh, the innovation and, and and I think it's the like I said, the surprise inside is what happens in a sort of in the personal aspect of the sharing economy. Um, you know, it's what both of these guys refer to as the community, and I think that the community it takes that that word gets is meant to be different things by different people depending on who's talking about it. But the community, like for example, in Etsy in the beginning. Uh, and, and I don't know their current stats, but up to about three years ago, more than 40% of the people who were buying things were actually makers who were selling on Etsy who were then taking, you know, some of their money and buying from other makers on Etsy. Um, and it was because... It's one big craft yeah. fair, is that what it sounds like to yeah, me? Yeah, in that case. But you, the size of that craft fair is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, there there's over about 619,000 new members a month. So... Um, these are things that are growing quite rapidly, um, and I think that the general economy is, is we're making a shift. We're making a shift, and, and the fundamental aspect is the word you hit on, which is distributed. We're seeing less everything being contained or owned inside of one corporation or one city and things being opened more as a platform to drive engagement um, and, to, and to invite um, openness, transparency, and, and participation. Andy Rubin? Yeah, we've, we've talked um, a few times the word communities come up, and I thought maybe I would just take a second to put a specific example to that. Because it is one of the unexpected, you know, retail can tend to be very um, transactional. And as we think of the way this world changes and the ability to have people involved in the giving and the getting, we recently, as many of you have, upgraded memory on uh, a Macintosh at home. And I had four meg of memory that, you know, traditionally I would have let sit in a closet until I moved. And because of Yertle, you know, as I post the memory, with the ability for my friends to see that, a friend of mine, Jeremy, actually took that memory and used it to upgrade um, the computers in the San Francisco Unified School District. And the part that was interesting to me on the exchange was I paid, you know, $40 for the memory. I got more value out of the memory I got rid of going into the San Francisco school when I saw a picture of the kids than I did out of the $40 toward the faster memory. And it's one of the unexpected areas of being more connected where those are beautiful moments and they're not moments that I'm used to in a traditional retail sense where you just, you're so appreciative of something you bought in a transactional way. And that's where, that's the unexpected community benefit of what we're talking about. That doesn't show up in GDP. It does not. It doesn't, no. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, uh, a company that's involved in the sharing economy. It's called Scoot Networks, and it's essentially like uh, Zipcar, but for scooters. And based on that perspective, I have a question about um, where you think the future of the sharing economy will go in terms of whether or not it's providing people with a different way to access things that they already use, or if there is a big potential for people to start doing new things, getting access to new services, new goods, new for example, scooters getting ways of getting around, um, whether or not you think that it's just going to help people to do things more easily or just actually start to do things they've never done before and whether or not that's going to be a whole new market in and of itself. I'd like to tackle that one. Uh, well, I have a Please, quick, quick answer, and then Please I'm again, sure these guys have something. Yeah. My view is that a lot of the sharing economy invites kind of trials or it's almost like a tapas mm. bar. I, I said tapas. Um, which is basically that you can have you can have little tastes of things so i can try the electric scooters or i can try a a kind of cool car that i was thinking about you know buying and then actually realize i don't need to buy it from the from a shared service or buy it you know i think um, much of what we've seen for example people um, trying out neighborhoods with airbnb or co-working spaces a lot of those things have invited um, a kind of exploration of, of of an experience or of a neighborhood. Um, on the other hand, I think people are using um, the the services. For example, um, something that's really I've been really impressed with is something called Trade School that was started in Brooklyn, and it's a barter system. 
um, basically it invited, it's tradeschool.coop, and they've built subsequently a platform that now they have trade schools popping up in Singapore was the last one that I saw last week. Um, but they're popping up all over the world. And ideally, the, the way this works is basically you get to know your neighbors because you teach each other the things that you're really passionate about and you kind of give each other classes. And it's completely a barter system. Um, and so people, I think, out of that have these interesting experiences and then move to, yeah, let's do a mushroom foraging uh, course together or take down take on this kind of um, exploration to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, hacker spaces are another really good example um, wh- where I think people try things that they wouldn't have otherwise tried and may decide that they you know want to be a designer or you know they have access to laser engravers and things that they themselves wouldn't buy but would love to learn how to use. And so I think that one of the things that the sharing economy invites is um, fairly uh, maybe typically out of reach experiences that many of us would like to have but don't really know how to how to access now suddenly there's a service that's that's all about that like cheese making in San Francisco I found out by the way cool let's have our next question we've got a couple minutes left yes welcome Thanks. To the uh, hi my name is Franklin Fuchs my question is related to like constraints with the business model because um, it seems like the majority of these these businesses work because there's essentially excess capacity or low utilization rates for an asset. So, you know, let's say you have utilization rate of 60%. seems like people would be very much willing to try to, you know, take a lower price to increase the utilization rate. But at some point, like if you're going from 60% to 80%, I'm willing to take a low price. But maybe like 80 to 90, you know, not so much. And so has there been much thought given to the, vi- the long-term viability of these models? Like at what point do you kind of tap out, I guess, or cap out? Yeah, I mean, maybe I can... Andy Rubin? Yeah, let me uh, add a few things there. I mean, with the current, with the current world we're in, just I'm going to speak to the U.S. market for a minute. I mean, 80, for the average, if you were in the average U.S. household, 80% of the items in your household are used less than once a month. Um, in general, self-storage in the U.S. is up a 1,000% in the last 30 years. And that's not just a question of what we are not using. That is what we are not using to the extent of paying to hold on to it. <laughs> right? So it goes beyond not use. And so, you know, we, we have, you know, when you think of the pendulum swinging, we have swung to the point that there's absolutely massive excess capacity now. But the, but the future of that, let's just imagine a world where that excess capacity was increasingly used up. I think we've just begun the ability of more connection where we think of the products that a Patagonia jacket for a six-year-old can get worn by, you know, 25 six-year-olds and go to hundreds of bonfires and ski trips and be as good that day when it's done on a hundredth trip as the day that it was made. And that is simply a more valuable model than the take-make-waste where we produce hundreds of Patagonia chinchillas and they all end up being recycled with increasing energy and less quality gear. And so not only do we use the capacity we have, which is massive to make use of, but there are continuing models that are just better with more of the shared connection that don't go away, even as the capacity gets taken up a bit. That shared connection you're uh, assuming is, is outweighing the cultural, the deeply embedded cultural value of something that's newer, better, and the idea that you know, you're wearing a, a used Patagonia jacket like us, oh, a hand-me-down, and so, somehow it's lesser. It keeps you just as warm, but we have a deep, strong cultural bias toward things that are clean and new and, the, and that we're bombarded with messages all the time that that's what we're supposed to do. So I, I just uh, that's absolutely correct that there is a bias toward new. What we've seen in everything that's happened so far is while something that you get from somebody else, a complete stranger, might be worth half of what it should be worth, in your Patagonia example. A Patagonia that I get from someone that I care about is actually worth twice as much. We recently got an Othello game from a friend of mine, Pam. And every time I play the game Othello, I think of Pam. And the Othello game is actually worth, I mean, it's probably a $9 game. But to me, it's worth more because Pam was generous enough to post that item in Yertle, and we're using that game. And so that's the importance, at least for the Yertle model, in the social connection that this is a, a beautiful act of being able to take something you're not using and share it with someone you care about, or vice versa, get something from someone who's caring about you in that way. 
probably the way our grandparents did. We have to wrap it up, but um, any last words? I was just going to say one quick comment, which is I think in a lot of what we were organized around in the old model that you referred to was autonomy equals security. And I think where we're coming to is that being connected equals security, that because we are connected into with people that we trust and because we act and we can choose to be reorganizing communities, that's really what's what's kind of giving giving us our confidence. I mean, I've been in the Bay Area during the 89 earthquake, for example, and reorganized, self-organizing communities happen, you know, very quickly and bond really deeply. And, and I think we're seeing that increasingly all around the world, not just because, spurred by those sorts of things, but the technology really has allowed us to make connections that are resilient and and pretty fun. And that's going to happen more as we face more climate disruption. It's those kind of communities that are going to be able to be most resilient and respond to the kind of things that we scientists are telling us are coming our way. I mean, so quick quick comment, which is I thought really interesting. Sandy, after in New York, after the Sandy storm, um, clever people figured out that they could use the registry, uh, wedding registry from Amazon and use the wedding registry from Amazon to figure out who needed what uh, from within their community so that they could then redistribute to those people and families. You know, so my, the, I think the point all of us are making is we have an incredible inheritance. We have an incredible physical and digital inheritance of these things that we have and the opportunity to be connected, to be aware, and to play together faster is, is really um, a great way to, to reduce carbon, but also, I think, to build ties that are lasting. And after Sandy, some of the distributed and solar power was some of the uh, worked better than some of the old uh, centralized model. We have to we have to end it there. We've been talking about the sharing economy with Lisa Gansky, author of The Mesh: Why the Future of Business is Sharing. Andy Rubin, co-founder of Yertel, and Billy Parrish, founder and president of Solar Mosaic. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening to Climate One today.